Hi, Randy. Thanks for uh, coming on and talking to me today. Jake, thanks for inviting me. So I've, I became familiar with your work um, through your book, Misreading Scripture Through or With Individualistic Eyes. And I, I know that you wrote one a few years back on a similar topic, which was misreading scripture with Western eyes. Um, to me, the, the ideas, I, I hadn't heard these perspectives before, which is why I found it so interesting. Um, and it seems like it, it would produce some pretty substantial differences in how we read and interpret the Bible. What led you down the road of writing these books? And um, what, what made you realize that, that this was a problem and something that, that needed to be addressed? All right, well, uh, Jake, let me start by uh, tweaking a little bit a couple of the statements that you made. I think right. these perspectives will help us read better yeah. uh, Scripture. But there's nothing wrong with the way that we read it. It's been done very successfully in different cultures. But all cultures have uh, a perspective. I, I call them lenses that help yeah. that through which we see Scripture. So those lenses... Uh, like like the eyeglasses I'm wearing, help me to focus on some things. So because of my culture, which is a uh, American, Southern U.S. kind of perspective, uh, because of my culture, there are some parts of Scripture that I can see very clearly. They help me to read Scripture better. Um, for instance, um, generosity. Uh, my particular culture... Uh, has a very generous trend uh, tendency to it. So when Jesus talks about being lavishly generous, I think, well, of course we should be. And I tend to act on it well. Uh, we're also a very forgiving culture. So we do forgiveness really well. When Jesus says, you ought to forgive people, we think, well, yes, of course. Uh, and everybody should. We think everybody looks at the same way we do, although they don't actually. Uh so my lens, my worldview, will help me to see some scriptures better. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they also function as blinders, to use the uh, American term. Um, it keeps me from seeing some things. And so points that are obvious in scripture, they think they've made it clear. Yeah. I don't see because it's not a part of my culture. So uh, you ask what made me decide to, to write a book like this? Well. There's an old phrase that it's scarcely a fish that notices water. Um, the fish notices it when you take them out and drop them in the bottom of the boat. So I got picked up and dropped into the bottom of a boat uh, in Southeast Asia. We were living on an island between Borneo and Papua New Guinea and with some wonderful people. I was teaching there and in that uh, context, I started noticing things that I hadn't seen before. So they they caused me to uh, start wondering how uh, have I been blind to some things in Scripture? Uh, Jake, let me tell a fun story. Uh, when I first, one of the first times I noticed this, I was in a village. I think it was in uh, Sulawesi or Papua. I don't know where it was, Borneo, someplace. I was in a village in Indonesia, and I had finished speaking in a church, and afterwards it's very common for us all to go over to someone's home, and we sit around the living room talking while uh, a meal is prepared. And so we're having a good time talking, and, and I could tell they wanted to ask me something. So finally they did. They said, uh, Pastor, um, which was the title they used for me, uh, Pastor, we have a difficult question. Could you help us? Of course, you know, I was a young missionary as well as a teacher. And I thought yeah, I was cocky. You know, I thought, yeah, sure. I can, I can help you with this. You know, what's the question? They said, well, this young couple from another village uh, committed a very, very grievous sin in their home village. I said, really? They said, oh yeah, so bad. They had to flee their village and they came to our village. And they've been here about 10 years or so, living wonderful, godly lives. And they'd like to join our church. We just don't know if they can, if they'd be allowed. Um, I said, well, what was the sin? They said, oh, it's very, very serious sin. 
So we're talking a little bit about it, and I realized I'm not going to be able to answer their question if I don't know what the sin was. And they didn't want to air dirty village laundry, you know, in front of the guest. So they finally said, they told me, they said, well, the couple um, married on the run, which is what in our culture we call eloping. And I looked at them and I said, well, what's the sin in that? And they got all quiet and they looked at me and they said, Pastor, ha have you never read Paul? And, you know, I have a Ph.D. in Paul. And uh, <laughs> I thought, I think I've read everything he's written. You know, I, I looked obviously confused and they said, well, Pastor Paul says children should obey their parents. Now we know they don't obey their parents in everything, but in really the most important decision in their life, surely we should expect them to obey their parents. And I sat there and Jake, the thought suddenly occurred to me. I had been given that verse an expiration date. In my mind, Paul meant children until you reach 18 should obey their parents. And their question to me resonated with me. Have I ever read Paul? And so that started me thinking about in what other ways am I superimposing my culture onto the text? Yeah. How how did you go about investigating that, that question and, you know, digging into all all the various fundamental differences and the things that, that they wrote that they assumed everybody understood because you write about it being a high high cult or high context culture where all of these norms were implied as being understood what was your process for digging into some of those things and figuring out how they differ from the way that that we've been interpreting it and understanding it in the in the west well jake the easiest way to start is to sit down and read the text with uh, fellow christians brothers and sisters who are from other cultures around the world. So whether that's your neighbor across the street from Southern India, or the, the other one down the street from the Middle East or something, you start reading the text with them and noticing where they're picking up something that you haven't uh, picked up before. Mm -hmm. So, um, and sometimes it's when there's something missing in the text. Um, well, it's, it's not missing because there's a flaw. <laughs> it's missing because everybody knows that, you know, so they don't bother to. So uh, let me give an example. Jesus says, a sower went out to sow seeds and he threw the seed out. Some fell on rocky ground. Some fell among the thorns, that sort of thing. Well, Jesus doesn't stop and explain Palestinian farming because everybody knew that. Yeah. Um, and then he said, and you remember in the parable, three of the four soils don't produce good fruit, but one produces 30-fold, 60-fold, and even 100-fold. Okay. He also doesn't explain, well, what's a normal harvest? Well, I, you know, I don't know either, but subconsciously I kind of thought, well, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. 60-fold must be normal. You know, you get 60 times as much fruit as you put down. So Jesus was saying, you know, a not-so-good harvest, an average harvest, or a good harvest. But he doesn't say. So what I missed in that, because I didn't know, an average harvest was seven and a half-fold. So a ten-fold harvest was a good harvest. And Jesus said, oh no, you get thirty-fold, sixty-fold, or a hundredfold. So what went without being said, what was a normal harvest, kept me from seeing what Jesus meant was, sometimes the harvest is amazing. Sometimes it's unbelievable. And sometimes it's beyond imagining. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not the point I had gotten out of. Yeah. How do you think, well, is it, what's the process been like for people trying to teach those ideas while giving some of that context to people in the West or people I like I'm from the United States. I'm very much grew up in an individualist culture and it, it feels like I would have a very difficult time reading the Bible by myself and understanding those things and 
not interpret and not interpreting it correctly. What, what are some of the measures that are being taken to try and sure. give some of that context? Jake, first, I would say, don't ever be discouraged. Um, I started reading scripture, you know, when I was in my early teens, clueless about a lot of stuff. But the spirit works within us and brings a lot of things to understand. And I can get a ton of good out of it without ever even knowing that I was an individualist or that right. other people were collectivists. Yeah. And so what we're really talking about is how can I read it better? So we don't want to get discouraged, but we do want to see if we can read it better. Um, in the old days, when I, when I was your age, uh, I was an individualist. Everybody I knew was an individualist. The whole entire culture was an individualist. And so we, you know, we, we never had any cross-cultural problems because we're all reading from the same viewpoint. It starts showing up when you start mixing cultures together. Yeah. And it's also when true insight starts coming. So my uh, my college students will say, well, Dr. Richards, how do I know that I'm an individualist? Well, I heard somebody once say, the easiest way to figure it out is to ask yourself, would you let your parents pick your spouse? If your answer is no, then you're an individualist. What's really fascinating is my Indonesian Christian friends who are collectivists, they're mystified. What? You, you wouldn't let your parents do that? And of course, being a good individual, so I said, no. And they said, your parents don't love you? I said, well, no, wow. no, my parents love me. They said, they don't know you? You don't trust them? Well, no, yeah, I mean, I, I, I trust, them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and they were just complete. They said, but wouldn't they want the best for you? Ah, uh, you know, and so it just <laughs> ended up, so that's that's the real I think in our culture, the litmus test, that's an easy way to figure out, am I an individualist? It really is an issue of how do I define myself? Mm -hmm. And I usually do it when I introduce myself in a group. I'll start pointing out all the things that are unique about me, my profession, my wife, my number of kids, where I live, all the things that are very individualistic, which ironically can change too. I just moved from South Florida up to Wisconsin. So that has changed. A collectivist will introduce themselves by the group that mm -hmm. they belong in, which doesn't actually change. So um, it is a very fundamental way of looking at scripture. Yeah. So when I wrote the first book, Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes, um, Somebody should write a book, Misreading Scripture with Eastern Eyes, mm. um, because that's they do too. Everybody misreads right. Um, But I can't write it because that's not my worldview. But I wrote yeah. one about Western Eyes, and I was just pointing out some common traits among a uh, an American like me who takes the Bible very seriously. So what are some common uh, traits about me that encourage me to misread scripture. I don't do it on purpose. I just never even saw it. Um, and after I wrote that book in, uh, as you mentioned, about 2012, you know, I pondered it for about 10 years and I thought to myself, um, there's, there's two things that I didn't do as well in that book as I wish I had. One was I had described individualism as a trait that we have in the West. The more I studied it, the more I realized it wasn't just a trait that we have in the West. It is the, it is the defining element. It's yeah. what makes us Western. Uh, and the other thing was I didn't do a good job with honor and shame. And uh, I mean, I did okay with it, but I thought I could do better. And so that's why I wrote the second book. It's kind of the 2.0. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, folks would do better if they started with the westernized book and then if they liked it then to go on to the the next one that makes sense so the, the idea seems like it's like the bible was written in collectivist cultures and those themes just kind of run throughout and are implied but you think that reading it in the in the typical way, um, I guess the, the typical individualist way, it's not necessarily wrong, but reading it 
with that understanding of the collectivism just helps gain better context. Although, I think so, uh, Jake, as I mentioned before, my culture helps me to see some things better in the text. So okay. um, I think the Western world has been a, a gift to mm-hmm. a Christendom. I think there are certain ways we've really helped people understand Scripture better. But there's other parts that I'm just completely oblivious to. I, I'm not deliberately ignoring them. I'm just never even seeing them. For instance, um, do you remember the story where Abraham has uh, some angelic visitors? He doesn't know they're angelic at, at first, but they come and visit him in his tent. And it says when Abraham sees them, he oh, runs yeah. out to greet these strangers and he invites them in. He tells Sarah, get some of our finest flour and bake bread. We're going to make a meal. He tells the servant, slay one of the animals and start it roasting. And he hosts a meal. Okay. It was my collectivist friends who said, um, when the meal is heard, he said, they said, did you see that? I said, see what? They said, uh, Sarah doesn't bake bread. I said, what? You know, and my thought was like, what is that? They said, no, he specifically tells her, make bread, and she doesn't make bread. And I thought, oh, I don't know if that's really the point. And then they say, the first thing they the guests say when the meal is served is they say, well, where's Sarah? I never noticed, never noticed that she had not served bread. Um, this is not a lesson about people serving but it was designed to show the tension that was constantly going on between Abraham and Sarah. Um, and I just never, never even saw it. To have, um, I, I guess, I, I think it, it could be helpful to have versions of the Bible that maybe like pointed out some of that context or are, are, are there various um, translations that have some of that in there or is it like because i mean to some extent the it would be maybe too long if you included a lot of those details but like are, is, is that something that people have been focused on doing and, and having maybe a translation it, of the bible um, with those details if you ask that question 30 years from now they probably will say yes um <laughs> People will write better books than the ones that I've written, but um, this is starting the discussion. Yeah. Just like in other areas of biblical studies, archaeology or other areas, someone will start pointing out, hey, this is, this is something we haven't been noticing. And then people will begin, scholars will begin paying attention to it and noticing it. But it's a fairly new uh, discussion. In fact, I'm, next month I'm giving another paper in, at an international conference just on this topic. It is, it's something that we're beginning to notice. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe we could talk about collectivism a little bit so people would get a better idea about yeah. this discussion. Yeah, yeah we, I mean, if, if, if you could go over, I guess, just some of the fundamental differences in sure. the, between in, individualism, um, collectivism, the way we see ourselves and our cultures. Sure. Um, in every culture, there are things, well, the, the, the saying is, the most important things in a culture go without being said. Mm-hmm. You know, we just don't talk about it. Um, in fact, we usually don't even think about it. It's just that, for instance, in, in my American culture, um, a fundamental value is efficiency. Um, if I said to you, hey, if we did it this way, it'd be more efficient, then we're thinking, okay, yeah. It's um, what ethicists call a a primary good in other words i don't have to defend it it's seen in and of itself as Mm. as good if you say well hey this is more efficient we think oh that's good um my encounter with that was when i was pointing out something in indonesian i said this is more efficient if it's more efficient if we do it this way and they said okay and then they kept doing it the other way and i said but it but it's more efficient this way and they said Yes. And it took me a while to realize for them, it's like saying we could paint it green. Well, you know, in their mind, green is nice, but, you know, it's blue and we like blue or what. It was a neutral value at best. It wasn't a negative value, but it certainly wasn't 
a primary good. And yeah. yet in our culture, um, um, you know, we, we don't even have to make an argument. It just seems that way. Or another example in uh, our culture, we value youth. Right. So um, in, <laughs> in Indonesia, they don't say it quite this way. But what they would say, for instance, to you, Jake, is they would say, well, you're young, but it's not your fault. And if you are wise, you'll live long enough to outgrow it. Well, that just stuns us. So in our culture, you can have a TV show where the uh, chief of surgery is 38 years old and clearly spends most of his time in a gym. Uh, and when we watch that movie, we don't think anything about it. You know, they say he's the he's the chief of surgery. We don't say that guy can't be the chief of surgery. Um, we admire youth. Um, so we, uh, you know, we value these things. Our old people, we ship off in warehouse somewhere. You know, we, it's just a value that we do. We don't have to argue it. We don't defend it. It just goes without being said. So in collectivism, there are three what I called elephants in the room. They are things that are a fundamental part of a collectivist culture. They're probably never discussed, and they go without being said. And those things are a kinship, who's related to who, patronage, this idea that um, someone can be a patron, a benefactor for others, open doors, that sort of thing, and then brokerage or a mediator, mediation. Now, what's fascinating about those three, and those are deeply held values, mm -hmm. highly esteemed in collectivism. In individualism, we don't like those three things. Yeah. Kinship we call nepotism. Patronage is already a negative term. And uh, brokerage or mediation, I mean, in our culture, what do you want to do with the middleman? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and yet these are always in play. What I tell my individualist friends, those things in any story, those things are in play. Hmm. And often they'll say, no. I was uh, talking with a uh, a doctoral class that had was full of international students, American students and African students and Asian students. And I mentioned in Africa, tribe, what tribe you are is always a factor. So I asked one of the African students, what tribe are you from? And he t told me, lit up and told me what tribe it was. And one of the American students said, you know, it makes us very awkward when you ask questions like that. And uh, and we hope it didn't offend their right. fellow student. <laughs> and the African student said, it took me a while to adjust the fact. No one has ever asked me. I've been in part of this doctoral class for a year and a half, and no one has ever asked me what tribe I'm from. He said, I, I don't think they care. And yet you can't know who I am without knowing what tribe I'm from. So I asked the group, I said, okay, uh, all of you who are from Africa, do you know the tribe of everyone else in the class? They said, yeah. I said, so every African in the class, you know what tribe they're from? Oh, yeah. I asked the Americans, do you know what tribe everyone is from? They said, no. And they don't think it matters. So I asked the African, does it matter? They said, how could it not matter? <laughs> so it was just, it's a fundamental thing. So those three pieces, kinship, patronage, brokerage. And in the case of Africa, that's a kinship. Kinship, they're always in play. Always a factor. So when you read the biblical story, the question isn't, gee, is kinship an issue here? Um, it It is a uh, an issue. I'm just... Maybe seeing it or maybe not seeing it. So um, that so with kinship, or I'm sorry, with collectivism, those are the three pieces in play. Mm -hmm. Every culture has value. So collectivists, those are the three 
big values. Now, there may be another huge value in there, okay, but those three are a great start. Um, so in American culture, we have certain basic values that are fundamental to who we are. Now, to teach those values, every culture has a way of teaching it. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I would say it is you have to teach the value, maintain the value, reinforce the value, enforce the value. It's constantly being stressed. So the value gets passed along. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So in our Western culture, American culture, the old ways to teach those values were folk tales, the tortoise and the hare, Cinderella, the early bird gets the worm, those kinds yeah. of things. Um, and also guilt. Guilt was a very powerful way to teach and reinforce a value. And guilt is very individualist. Okay. You, I can make you feel guilty without necessarily making your next-door neighbor feel guilty. Okay. So in collectivists, they don't use those uh, tools. They use honor, they use shaming, and they use boundaries to teach their values. So one of the interesting things, Jake, um, it's very common for old people like me to complain, people like you today, <laughs> you don't have the values yeah. that, you know. Now, that's my generation's fault, not yours. Because what happened was we quit teaching you the stories. Mm. Um, when I asked my college students, you know, I'll say, oh, you, you know, the story of the boy who cried wolf. They're like, I, I don't know that story. I say, how do you not know that story? I don't know that story. We were taught those stories as part of reading. So Aesop's fables were a common part of a reading program, along with C. Jane Run and other incredibly dull books. So along comes this guy, Dr. Seuss. And he made so much better stories, okay? And then you have the Berenstain Bears and all kinds of other great ways to teach reading. The problem was they weren't teaching the traditional values. And so um, you have a different, a slightly different worldview than I do because my generation failed to pass along the American values that were part of our culture. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, that has nothing to do with your Christian faith or my Christian faith, okay? But um, you have slightly different American values than I do because my generation failed to teach, enforce, and reinforce the values. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. One of the parts that I thought was interesting in the book was the conversation about shame and how much more of a nuanced topic it is for them. Um, I, which is not something that I, I was familiar with at all. Could, so could, could, let's could interrupt you... here and because we're about to offend a bunch of, of your listeners. Okay. Um, <laughs> shaming is a biblical virtue yeah. and a cultural vice. So God shames people. Jesus shames people. Paul shames people. Mm-hmm. Um, we think, oh, that's terrible. Because in our culture, the only kind of shaming done is negative. Is really right. what I call the misuse of shaming. So the only, if somebody who's listening is thinking about shaming right now, and they're an American, they're thinking about the misuse of shaming. Mm-hmm. The misuse of shaming is to push someone out of the group. You used to be we, you used to be part of our group here, but I am shaming you to push you away, push you out of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the misuse of shaming. The use, the proper use of shaming was to bring people back, to restore. You're drifting away and you're at risk of not being we, part of us right. anymore. And so I want to pull you back and make sure that you that you stay part of we. Um, so um, in our culture, 
in general, people need to avoid shaming. Um, Brene Brown is quite correct. And, you know, she heavily critiques shaming. But what she's critiquing is the misuse of shaming, yeah. the American use of shaming. In fact, it's become so pervasive, we may have to quit using the word. Um, but in a lot, in collectivist cultures, they'll have multiple words that we all translate shame. And in the New Testament, whenever it's used in a positive way, they have to find some other way to um, to talk about it. They can't use the word shame, so they'll translate it respect mm. or something. Um, but the idea is to help make sure that we all stay we. Yeah, and it, it seems like, like you were saying in the book that the perspective isn't that it's, it's not necessarily that when somebody does something that they shouldn't do, that they're like separating themselves from the group. They are remaining attached to the group and also like pulling the rest of the group uh, out of line. So like the, 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 the responsibility is to, to get that person back in line, which also allows the rest of the group in line because everybody is linked in a way that like they can't necessarily be cut off. And is it, is it that shame is, is used as like a meter of, being able to, to tell how you should act, the difference between good and bad, and use this more of a conscience rather than just a punishment? Yes, I think um, conscience is an individual version of sh shame. Okay. That it is, um, we realize as an individual, gosh, I shouldn't have done that. Okay, well, they realize, the group as a whole realize, wow, we shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have acted that way, and we shouldn't have allowed you to act that way. Um, and uh, we see that as kind of restricted. They see that as supportive. So, yeah. uh, Jake, let me give a, a a funny story. I was in a village one time in Southeast Asia, and they said, is it really true that if a boy and a girl like each other, they'll go off by themselves? I said, yeah, yeah, we, we call it dating. They said, oh, wow, that's amazing. They said, you know, in our country, if they did that, somebody would get pregnant. Um, <laughs> and in their thinking, in their mind, it, it wasn't the fault of the boy or the girl. Um, they don't say it this way, but a good analogy would be, you know, if you put sodium and chloride together, you're going to get salt. And it's not the fault of the sodium or the chloride. But what we do in our culture is we say, um, now don't do anything. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I tell my college students, joking with them, I tell them, um, the safest thing to do is only date people you don't really like. Um, because if you like them, well, the more you like them, the weaker your willpower is. Um, and... Uh, in Southeast Asia, they recognize, well, if they really love each other, they're going to be all handsy because they really love each other. So we have to protect them. Mm. Um, and uh, unfortunately, in our culture, we give you no protection. Yeah it's, 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 yeah, it's it's more of like a kind of for, like go off, like bang your head against the wall and then learn through your bruises. It's it's in collectivist cultures. It's more about like, like we're going to incrementally show you how to be able to hand, handle these situations without like falling on your face as much. Now humanity is fallen. So there are flaws in every. Culture. Yeah. Um, you know, absolutely. There's not a better one. I hate it when people say, well, wouldn't it be better if we were collectivists or wouldn't it be better if we were individualists? It's like saying yeah. which wing of an airplane is more it doesn't really matter. It's the way the world is. We just need to recognize some things we do really well and some things we don't do as well. Yeah. I I, I think that metaphor is interesting. I haven't heard that. Wings of an airplane. That, that's that's an interesting way of thinking about balancing it. Um, as far as, well, you, you said that they, they don't use um, the term guilt. How, how, how do those two, the, the words shame and guilt, how, how do those differ? in the way that they're used. Right. Um, you know, people say, well, wh what do you do in the Bible when that word occurs? Well, actually, it's not really that word. In our culture, we will translate mm -hmm. it. Okay. Um, 
But, um, I mean, it, it struck me when I was learning Indonesian. And I realized they had no word for that. Um, and you think, well, how, how can you not have a word for it? Well, the way I learned it another way was they also have no word for privacy. And, uh, and part of it is because there isn't any. Um, but uh, I was trying to teach some students about how to have a, a, a quiet time, a devotional time. And, uh, and I was trying to say, go someplace private. And I'm realizing in Indonesian, the only way I could mm-hmm. say that was, go somewhere where you'll feel lonely. Well, that's not a great way to start. <laughs> to start. Yeah. And, and what I discovered, because, you know, I was thinking, oh, this is a shame. They don't go and, and sit by themselves and read scripture and pray privately. They got up in the morning as a group in the dorm, wherever they were, and they sang songs and encouraged one another in scripture. And I was thinking, well, that's not the same thing. And then I thought, well, it's easy for me to sleep through my quiet time. Uh, but when the whole group is up there, they'd come bang on my door and tell me, hey, get up, we're starting. In some ways, it was easier for them because they had a group to support them versus mm-hmm. me just trying to set my alarm clock and get up in the morning or whatever. So yeah. um, I think uh, guilt, um, you know, it has some advantages and it has some disadvantages, just like having a devotional time by yourself versus with a group. Um, what do you do um, as an individualist when your conscience lets you off easy? Probably do the same mistake again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, while they might, you know, I might excuse myself by saying, oh, it's not that big a deal. Right. And the group would say, oh, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yes. So guilt can, is, is guilt more just like, um, a, a more specific version of shame? Like guilt is more of a, like, like the negative aspect of shame. Like, like you should feel that to keep you, to keep your conscience in check. It doesn't seem like it's a, it's a bad concept necessarily. No, it is. Uh, it, it's, I hope it's not bad. It's what we have in our culture. It's yeah. It doesn't our way seem of making people become aware of sin. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and it has advantages and disadvantages. Uh, in our culture, you could do something wrong, Jake, which you haven't, okay, just make sure that uh, your listeners know. But you could <laughs> do something wrong that no one knows about. No one knows about. And you could sit in your room by yourself and feel terrible over that mm-hmm. and have remorse and want to change your ways. Yeah. Well, that's a real advantage. Um, but you could also excuse your behavior. So right. That's a disadvantage. So there's strengths and weaknesses to both approaches. Yeah. Well, what, one of the differences that I thought was very interesting and seems very fundamental is the way that we, um, I, I guess the way that we perceive other people and, and judge them. That, that, that may not be the, the best word, but in in, in individualist cultures we we like to say you know each person is their own person they should be judged on their own independent actions you know their own personal merits and then the collectivist perspective is more that um they 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 factor in your family who your social groups are a little bit more which what was jesus's view on how how we should perceive people was it like somewhere in between like which one um I guess which which way should we is a more accurate uh, reading of of the Bible. Well, um, probably a better way to answer that question would be how how does our culture push us to over individualize uh, something? For instance, I was raised with this idea that I invite Jesus personally into my heart. That was the way I was raised. The more biblical image is Jesus invites me to join his kingdom. So he's saying, come be a part of my community, be a part of my kingdom. Well, that's that's a little different than the way I was raised. 
I can have this me and Jesus sort of individualism, um, radical individualism. In fact, why do I need a community? You know, uh, individualists have a tough time with why do I need church? You know, that kind of thing. And yet Jesus is saying, I've invited you to join my group. So you need to join my group. And uh, it's just not the, the maybe the default way that we think about it. Yeah. Uh, as, as far as uh, brokerage and mediators, um, my understanding is that in the Bible, Jesus acts as a, as a mediator between God and people. And that's something that's valued in those cultures. Um, why is having a mediator... Uh, what, why is that sometimes preferred to direct experience with God or the divine? Well, uh, here's a great example. Uh, for us, the most individualist thing in the world is like an Airbnb. I, <laughs> as an individual, work it out with you, the owner of this house, to stay at your mm-hmm. house. Yeah. And, uh, and we have this nice software that negotiates it. But it's a highly individualized experience. So I use... Airbnb to rent a place in Beirut, Lebanon. So I'm talking with this guy and we work it all out. When I arrive, I find out he's not the owner of the place. He's the owner's friend. He was mediating that discussion. We, um, and my default is, why well, I, I don't like that. And I mean, why? It worked out beautifully. When I had a problem with the place, I called the guy I was talking with and called the owner. Mm. He said, I'll take care of that. I'll talk to the owner. And he worked it out uh, immediately. The um, Technically, what the Holy Spirit does, and John, he's, he's called a paraclete, um, which we struggle with uh, translating. It probably is best translated a mediator. Mm-hmm. He's the one who negotiates. So uh, the best way to think about a mediator is they build a bridge between two people who don't have a connection. So they build the bridge and uh, mediators, the the image is always they go back and forth. They're constantly going back and forth in a sense, reinforcing, repairing, strengthening that bridge. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, "I, I came from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. I'll come back for you one day. That come, you think, wow, he's just coming and going all the time. Well, that was an image for a mediator. They're constantly negotiating and keeping that connection strong. Um, so if I need something, my mediator will uh, take care of it. In fact, a really great mediator might know that I need something that I haven't even realized yet. I yeah. And he'll arrange it for me. And hence the description in Scripture that if you don't know what to ask, the Spirit will ask on your behalf. That's mediation language. How, how can that, um, that, that concept, how can we, we use that to balance, like using a mediator to help us out can, while also being able to still like read the Bible by yourself, have your own um, personal practices? Is it just kind of a, a balance between the two? Yeah, I think so. And uh, uh, let's let's blend this with a conversation of of uh, patronage. Yeah, I was. So, uh, Jake, I I am a baker in the town of Philippi, and I'm a baker because my dad was a baker, and his dad was a baker, and my great granddad was a baker, and so I bake bread in the town of Philippi. And since I'm a baker, I worship the god uh, of baking, Fornax. And, uh, and so everything, so do all my baking neighbors. Well, one day I show up at my bakery and it's burnt to the ground. And my neighbors say, you must have angered the goddess Fornax. And she has burnt, she has smoked you by burning your bakery down. Well, today we'd look and say, well, I didn't put the fire away carefully and it got loose out of the oven and burnt my bakery down. But either way, I have no bakery now. I can't get a loan. They had banks back then. They charged about 11%. But I can't get a loan because the only collateral I have is has been burnt to the ground. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what am I going to do? Well, 
you're uh, one of the craftsmen who, who lives down the street and you and I know each other and you say, I think I can help you. I have a friend. In the biblical world, by the way, a friend means everything but a buddy. Okay, so when the scripture refers to a friend, they don't mean what we mean by BFF. It's usually one of these relationships. In yeah. this case, you have a patron who's wealthy and helps support your business. Now, uh, if your business, let's say you make bricks, um, one of the things you do is you make bricks for the people that your patron knows. And so he makes sure that you get a fair price for your bricks and all the business you need. And you make sure that his his other friends, so to speak, get all the bricks they need and everything works fine. So you say, I have this friend who might be able to help you. So every morning, your job is to get in line with all the other friends of your patron um, every morning to see if he needs something. So you wait your turn based on probably some sort of hierarchy. You, you wait your turn and you ask your uh, friend, do you need anything? And he'll say, no, I don't need any bricks right now. Do you need anything? And you may say, no, I think I'm good, you know, that sort of thing. Then you say, but I have this friend named Randy. He has a problem. Well, you have mediated. You've given me a chance mm. to talk with someone. That's the strength that you have. By the yeah. way, uh, that patron is not required to help me. Right. You know, he's not required. But let's say I have a nice face, okay, and he really likes you. And so he says, you know what, I, I, I am going to help Randy. So he says, Jake, I want you to provide some bricks for him and some other of his friends, his clients they're called. Mm -hmm. They're going to provide various things. He's going to give me some money and he's going to help me rebuild my bakery. If I say yes, now I am part of his community. Mm -hmm. That's really big. So from now on, who do I bake bread for? Well, for him and for all of the clients that he has. And he'll make sure I get paid for my bread and all that. But I'm now part of his household. So the next morning, I'm in line with you because I'm now part of his household. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now, here's why it matters, Jake. This is really important. The gift that your friend gave me to rebuild my bakery, um, the old Greek word for that was charis. It meant a gift. Okay, there you go. And if I accept that gift, then I should be loyal to him. Pistis, they called it. So I should be loyal to him because I'm now part of his household. Well, Paul uses those two words. And the only time they're used together is when they're referring to a patron and, and a client. And we translate them grace and faith. Yeah. So when Paul says, by grace, the gift that God gives us, by grace we have been saved, through faith, loyalty to our patron. So now I am part of the household of God. Mm. So every morning, I should get in line and ask my father if he has any thing he needs from me. It's a beautiful image. Paul yeah. used two images to express our relationship. One was patronage and the other was adoption. And there were images that everybody understood to explain salvation that no one understood. Yeah, so with that that idea of patronage in the Bible, God being depicted as you know the ultimate patron, what what is it what does it mean to um accept him as a patron and you know, show allegiance, show faith. Is is faith considered more of a a belief or an action or both? What, what does it mean to accept that oh, patron? Great question, Jake. So um, I'm the baker again. Um, I have to believe when the patron says he's going to give me what I need to rebuild my bakery, I have to believe that. But I also yeah. need to be loyal to him. One of the worst sins in the biblical world was being ungrateful. Yeah. Ingratitude. So I need to be grateful for what he does. By the way, God's look in scripture. He hates being he hates ungrateful people. Mm -hmm. He hates grumbling. It's kind of interesting. It's one of the things that really gets under his skin is grumbling. So <laughs> when people say, What is it really that I'm doing as the baker? Am I believing or am I 
acting and responding. And they would say, yes, yes, you are. And so it's a false division in modern, and you're reflecting modern scholarship. It's, um, it's a current debate. So your listeners know you're right on the cutting edge of stuff. It's a common debate right now. Is it belief or is it responding? And the answer is yes. <laughs> so that, 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 that kind of goes into honor. Um, just, I guess as the, the fundamental values that, that you're living by, can, can you outline that, um, that concept yes. of, of honor, because it seems like it can be kind of confused and maybe um, directed towards the wrong things. What, what, what are they meaning by right. honor? So uh, honor is technically not a value. It's a tool oh, right. um, to enforce a value. Hmm. So the Jesus, the thieves on the cross, the Roman centurion crucifying them, all three believed in honor and valued honor, but what they considered honorable was different between Rome, the Roman soldier considered honorable to obey Rome. The thief on the cross, who's probably a revolutionary rebel, actually, more considered it honorable not to obey Rome. And then Jesus considered it honorable to do the will of his father. So it is, uh, it seems confusing to people because it seems like at different times, we say honor means different things. Well, honor always means the same thing, but the value it's supporting Got might it. be different depending upon the, the group. So um, honor is a group value. So if you say you're more honorable, well, you're not more honorable unless your group says, yep, yeah, yeah, there you are, you are more honorable. Mm -hmm. So the way it shows up in the New Testament, Jake, is all public questions are contests over honor. If you, if, if it says someone stood up and asked Jesus a question, they're contesting over his honor. So when Nicodemus has a genuine question, doesn't want a contest over honor, he comes to Jesus at night for a private question. We read the huh. disciples, after Jesus finished teaching, they waited till they all went into the house and then they asked their question because they don't want an honor contest. They want to ask a question for information. So when we read, um, Jesus is invited to a dinner at Simon's house, Simon the leper's house, and uh, Jesus says, let me ask you a question, Simon. That would be an honor contest. So with, with, with Jesus, it seems like, uh, if I'm understanding the book correctly, you're saying that, that the, the primary values that he was showing was love, humility, and self-sacrifice. And Paul was talking about that even if society doesn't always value those, that that's what God values. Is is was that outlining? I guess like the the fundamental values that honor is should be aimed um, to be used as a tool to support or enforce. Yes. Yeah, so three? you're right on. You're right on target, Jake that both, everyone in the biblical story, the Romans, the Jewish peasants, Jesus, the disciples, whoever, they would use honor to support what they think is an important value. Yeah. Um, but they would not always agree on the value. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, don't be like the Gentiles that lorded over their followers. Mm -hmm. Instead, you should be the servant of all. That's a different value than what the Gentiles had. But they would both use honor to teach whichever value it was they were going to teach. And with um, the, the idea of reciprocity and relationships where, you know, you do something for somebody and then you expect or hope that they do something in return. It, it seemed like, it was, was Jesus saying that's not, it's not necessarily what you should be aiming for on a personal level, but you should be, seeking reciprocity more from God, like at the end, than, than an individual you relationship. Exactly right, Jake. Um, in the ancient world, what, the way we say, we don't like reciprocity. So we say gifts should not have strings attached, meaning you should give a gift, not expect anything in return. Um, biblical folks and most of the modern world that's collectivist, 
they they want the strings attached. Now they wouldn't say it strings attached. They would say gifts hold hands. So by giving a gift and then you give me something back and I give you something and you give me something back, it ties us together and mm-hmm. helps us to be we, you know, rather than just me. Yeah. So when I teach that, then uh, one of my students will say, but Jesus said, when you give a gift, don't, don't expect, you know, when you invite someone over, don't expect them to invite you back. So he was teaching against reciprocity, but they haven't really read what Jesus said. He said, don't expect them to invite you back. Rather, your father who saw what you did, Hmm. he will give back to you. So you do, as you point out, you want reciprocity, but you want it with God, not with um, just your neighbors. So we can help someone who's not able to reciprocate us because our father sees that and he Mm -hmm. will reciprocate us. So so that's a way of breaking out of only helping somebody out when you know they're in some kind of position or you have an expectation of them to return the favor later right. it's just doing it's it for its own to sake that whole household thing again right so i as a baker give bread to you you may not pay me but we're both clients of the same patron and he's going to reciprocate to me in a whole different way yeah i i, I thought the 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 concept of boundaries was interesting because and you mentioned with the the tribes conversation earlier there's in in some areas there's um a, a lot of pride in defining your group and what you know sets you apart in the United States it's like it seems like we valued the other way around you know being a melting pot assimilating various cultures how how do those two different perspectives um influence the way that we that we interact with other people like is it i guess how how does it influence the way that we accept other people in or try to like keep those boundaries a little bit stronger and protect traditions a little bit more what's like the the way of um managing those concepts well it is interesting um we we still value groups in our culture um, we don't want soldiers to all act like a group of individuals. We want right. them to feel like they belong to something. Um, at Ohio State, everybody's supposed to be rooting for a certain team. Um, you, you could Somebody could be organizing a class of 2025 gift or display on campus. Mm-hmm. People have a sense of belonging. The difference for us is we want to choose which group we belong to. And in collectivists, you're born into that group. We think, oh, that's not as good. Well, yeah, except it takes a lot of pressure off you. So I don't know if one way is better than another. But in the yeah. end, we still want to belong to something. You know, the in our culture, loneliness is a much more serious risk than sure. it is in some other cultures. So yeah. there's good and bad to everything. So it's is, is, it, is it more about having a group that that you belong to and a group that you're connected with without um, pitting your group against another group? Well, let me put it this way. It seems like we have a a bad risk of doing that historically. Yes, we do. The scriptural message is you and I are part of the household of God. Mm -hmm. So, and in fact, they'll use family language. Um, You know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, And as a result of that, we have obligations to one another. So you invited me to come onto your show Mm -hmm. just to make sure people know there's no lucrative honorarium involved here. You're not paying me Mm -hmm. to be on your show. So why did I accept? Because we're part of the household of God. You're trying to communicate with a group that I don't normally communicate with so you're being a mediator to help me reach with a message to another group and also just because we're part of the same household we should be trying to help each other out as much as we can so you're predisposed to be particularly nice to me you know i mean you'll take me to task if i say something knuckleheaded but in general um both of us were confident it wasn't going to be an adversarial relationship because we belong to a group 
Yeah. You, you mentioned that, um, in teaching young ministers in the United States, you said that, that their biggest challenge will be creating a Christian family out of individualists. Oh. How, 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 how have you approached that problem? Um, what seems to work? What, what does not Well, Jake, whatever worked with my generation needs to be reinvented for yours. <laughs> so you will need to figure it out. Um, and part of that is addressing what is the felt need. Let me use a different example. When we were communicating the need for the gospel, are you early on, people felt guilty all the time. So the we would start a message with forgiveness. God offers forgiveness for your uh, feelings of guilt. Well, over time, people quit feeling guilty. So the wrong way to do it is that first I have to make them feel guilty so that I can then offer forgiveness. What a wonderfully clever guy named Bill Bright realized, people, they may not be feeling guilty, but they're feeling like there's meaninglessness. And so he started the gospel presentation with God has a plan for your life. Whoa, that that resonated with the need people felt. Well, over time, your generation comes along and you weren't feeling necessarily particularly guilty, nor were you feeling particularly like you're struggling with meaninglessness. So early on, we said they'll have your generation will have to come up with another. You'll have to analyze what is the need we feel and then how does the gospel meet that need and my students would say well what is it i say i don't know you guys have to figure it out and then someone did they said what your generation was feeling was broken relationships and so they said what god does is he restores your relationship with each other with yourself with him with all of creation and it has really resonated with your generation. Well, the gospel does all those things. It offers forgiveness. It offers meaning. It offers restoration of relationships. Okay, but you lead with what people feel. So you came along and you said, all right, so what is it that we need to say about this? I think what we need to say is, how does it meet your need? Um, what are you feeling? Because belonging is, I think, a fundamental need of humanity. Yeah. So um, what does belonging to the Christian community, how does that resonate with you? What particular aspect appeals? Which verses um, appeal? Does that make sense? And it yes. varies my culture. When I worked with people in central Papua, they're afraid of the spirits. Um, so when I would talk to them about the gospel, I would use Colossians. I would start by saying, God gives you victory over, over evil spirits. And they'd say, really? How does that work? Well, you can't do that at Ohio State University. Go around telling people, hey, God gives you victory over evil spirits. God gives you, it may be right. true, but boy, people are going to label you weird. Yeah. Um, so you need to look at what is What's a fundamental emptiness need inside them that Christian community can address? So, so it's about finding that specific need that any given group has, and so it's, it's filling it based on the context? I think so. It doesn't mean it's completely relative or anything yeah. like that. The gospel does all those things. Yeah. But if someone is hungry, offering to repair their car, even though their car is broken, it's not. So you, you start with where the sensed greatest need is. Mm -hmm. But eventually the gospel meets all the needs of life. You, at, at the end of the book, you write that of, of all of the systems and ideas, love is the glue that allows them to be used correctly and, and keeps them all together and allows us to apply them. It, it seems like that's a term that can be overwhelmingly vague and hard to pin down, maybe because it's a term that it's trying to describe a, a bigger feeling that really can't be put into words. How can that, um, that feeling be better facilitated so that it can, it, it can be something that's deeply felt rather than something that feels like maybe a cliche or a shallow term just from us not knowing how oh. to interpret it. Uh, Jake, the most important things in a culture usually go without being said. 
also the most important things in a culture are usually hard to define. Yeah. So people will say to me, um, can you give me a simple definition of honor? And the answer is no. I can't, you know. And uh, love, Christian love, you know, can I give you a simple definition of no? Yeah. Um, it's hard to explain. It doesn't. <laughs> uh, one time I was overseas and I had this student who was just being whiny. You know, there's no other way to say it. She was just being whiny. And what I wanted to say was, you know, you just need to toughen up. And I realized first, I didn't know a word, Indonesian word for that. And then the longer I went through I realized I have no way to explain that. And yet it's a, it's a fundamental value in mm -hmm. our American culture. Even the most wonderful, delicate and feminine little flower out there, she's, she can be tough, you know, in a delicate and feminine way, but she's tough. And, and we know what that means. If I told you, Jake, you just need to toughen up. You would have an idea of what I meant, but boy, mm -hmm. it'd be hard to explain to someone else. Right. So when we talk about, we need to let love permeate us. We're getting that message from Paul and from Jesus. And I would say, um, Jake, if you can figure that out, within 30 years, you'll be ahead of the curve. Um, really important things take time. Yeah. Um, you know, you can make a cake in a microwave, it's just not any good. And, uh, you know, to spend the next 30 years pondering, how do I really love my neighbor? It would actually be time well spent. So, so it's, something that, that you find on your own just by paying attention and trying to seek, uh, paying attention to when that feeling presents itself and just finding themes over time? I would say you don't find it out on your own. You find it out in community. Are you married yet? No. Okay, no, maybe you'll never be married. That's fine. But if you are one day, your wife will teach you a lot about what love means. Okay, yeah. yeah. Your children will teach you even more about what love means. And grandchildren will teach you even more about what... So it's not that you have to figure it out on your own, but you need lots of people to figure it you, you may get a professor. You think, that professor really genuinely loves me. And will... We had a beloved high school football coach just die recently. And one of the comments the player said was, you knew that guy loved you. Well, it wasn't because he said something one day. Um, but they will be better at understanding love because of that experience. Mm -hmm. So it's something that uh, you will learn, but not on your own. And that's, that's the importance of having such a strong community where you can like you can experience other people who give that off and you can start to pick it up yourself. Wow. That's a great way to say it. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I think you're right. Yeah. Good. Thanks. Well, th thanks a lot for coming on. This has been um, a very interesting conversation and a very interesting topic of books. I've just recently stumbled upon. So yeah, th thanks for um, writing those and providing that perspective for how we can, you know, better interpret these ideas. I, th I think it's really cool and important. Jake, thank you for inviting me. It was very kind.